There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. Welcome to Revealing the True Light. When I was a New Ager over 50 years ago, we dismissed the whole concept of sin. We didn't think it was relevant. Man's problem was not sin, but rather ignorance of our innate divinity, or at least that's what we believed back then. But now as a follower of Jesus and a believer in the Bible, I see that this foundational concept of sin is something that people need to understand in order to find the cure. You have to discover the cause in order to find the cure. You have to have a diagnosis to get a prognosis, right? And so that's what we're doing on this series. And it's a two-part series. Last week, I taught on this spiritual black plague of sin, part one. And this week, we're pursuing the same concept, the same theme. Now, I ended last week's program with the original Hebrew and original Greek words that are the dominant words translated as sin. The Hebrew word is kata'a, and the Greek word is hamartia. And both of them mean missing the road or missing the mark. The road leads to fellowship with God. The mark is utter perfection, and sin causes you to miss the road and to miss the mark. And of course, that means utter perfection in everything you think, utter perfection in everything you say, utter perfection in everything you feel, utter perfection in everything you do. And anything short of that qualifies as sin. And so this is something we've got to deal with. And of course, in English, the letter I is the middle letter of the word sin because really ego is in the center of the problem. And we have to move ego to the side instead of enthroning self. We enthrone the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives and then sin is placed in a subordinate and conquered position. Now, what is the difference between sin and other words that are used to describe the same problem, like wickedness. Well, wickedness is a term that means twisted, twisted opposite to what God's intentions are. For instance, the wick of a candle is twisted frans of some kind of material in order to hold a flame. Wicker furniture is twisted strands of some type of bamboo-like material that produces a chair or a piece of furniture. And so the word wicked means twisted or perverted opposite of what God's intentions are. And there's other words like transgression. Transgression means rebellion, but it has the flavor of meaning to go beyond or to step across a boundary, to transgress is to 
go beyond a boundary that's been set for you. Aggression and transgression are related words because if you're aggressive, you go beyond the normal boundary of social mores in order to be pushy on another person. Well, when you transgress, you go beyond the boundaries that God has set for human beings to live within. Moral boundaries, very similar to the word trespasses. And yet there's a little bit different flavor of meaning because to trespass means to go into forbidden territory. It's not just moving out of the area you're supposed to inhabit, but moving into an area you're not supposed to inhabit. No trespassing is a sign you see a lot on people's property. And really, the whole world outside of the biblical order should have a big sign erected over it, no trespassing. When I talk about this, so I think about my son when he was about four years old. He was out in the front yard with my, uh, with my mother-in-law, who was weeding the flower bed out front. And she tried to take him out to get some sun and also to watch over him while she took care of the garden. And I was inside working at my desk and I looked out and noticed she had a dilemma that he kept running down near the street. Now we're in a cul-de-sac, so it's not too much traffic, but still we didn't want him running down near the street where he could possibly get hit by a car. So my poor mother-in-law would run after him and grab him and pull him up and tell him, you better stay up here. And as soon as she turned her back, he was off down through the yard again, several times. And so I knew I needed to help her. So I walked out in the front yard with a big stick and I said, son, do you see this stick? And he said, yes. And I put it down in the yard. I said, that is your boundary. You can't go beyond this stick to go down near the road, or I'm going to come out and personally remove you from the front yard and you won't be able to play out here. Is that clear? Yes, sir. Well, I thought I took care of the situation. I was the solution. But I went inside, sat down at my desk, and lo and behold, my son had the stick in his hands running down to the road. And I ran outside. I said, Seth, what are you doing? He said, Dad, I haven't gone past the stick yet. It's still out in front of me. And I thought, I have been outwitted by a (laughs) four-year-old. And yet, that's exactly what human beings do. They pick up the boundary and move it according to their own desires, according to they, what they want the boundaries to be in their life, what they think they should be allowed to do or not allowed to do as a human being. So quit moving the boundary. Accept God's boundary for your life. Now, there's a strange contradiction. People think that freedom means being free to indulge in any kind of activity they want to indulge in. In other words, free to sin because I'm a free moral agent and I can do what I want to do because I have a free will. But Jesus countered that kind of mindset. And listen to what he said in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 34. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Underscore the word free in your mind. The truth 
will make you free. Well, if you know the truth, it sets boundaries in your life. And if you rebel against those boundaries, that's transgression. That's trespassing into territory that's forbidden. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants, and we've never been in bondage to any man. How then would you say we will be made free? And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And that's inevitable. Nobody can get away from that. Nobody can escape that. Nobody can say, well, it's different for me because that's a standard for the whole human race. Whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. Let me go into another misunderstanding. And believe me, a lot of people have this misunderstanding. They think I am a sinner because I sin. You may think that. Well, the reason I'm a sinner is because I committed a sin. No, that's not correct. It's absolutely opposite to that. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. I know that sounds insulting. I know that people get offended when you use that term. But unfortunately, it's God's declaration over the whole human race. And there's only really two categories you can be in, either that of a sinner or that of a saint. And saints are not some elite group of people that have reached a high degree of piety normal human beings could never reach. Any blood-washed, born-again child of God is referred to in Scripture as a saint. And so we're in one category or the other. But listen to this. We are first sinners by birth, and then sinners by nature, and then finally sinners by choice. We are sinners by birth, sinners by nature, and sinners by choice. That's the progression. And let me give you scripture for it. In Psalm 51, verse 5, David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The very moment of conception involved an impartation of a sinful status. That's frightening, that's disturbing, but that's true. Because when a man and a woman come together in marriage, they are in a fallen state. Their souls are darkened with the death-dealing effects of sin. And when they come together in marriage and produce a child, there's an impartation of that fallen soulish state. Even if the parents are saved individuals, There's still this fallen world that we're a part of and a fallen nature that all of us have to deal with. And of course, when you're saved, you're positioned in a place of superiority or supremacy over the lower nature where you can conquer it, but you still have to deal with it. And you still impart that fallen nature to your children. So you're a sinner by birth, then a sinner by nature. Ephesians 2.3 says, that we lived among those that we all once conducted, where we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Once again, we are either the children of wrath or the children of mercy. We fit in one category or the other. And we were by nature, by nature, we had the nature to sin. It came natural. Nobody told you how to lie. 
You naturally had the ability to lie from an early age with crumbs all over your face and crumbled cookies on the floor. No, mommy, I didn't put my hand in the cookie jar. It's the nature of fallen human beings to lie. And then finally, we're sinners by choice. The psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 11 said, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so that's the progression. Sinners by birth, sinners by nature, sinners by choice. In like manner, the cure is in the same pattern. You become righteous by birth, righteous by nature, and then righteous by choice because most people think I'm righteous because I don't sin. Therefore, I'm righteous. No, 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 no. It's righteous by birth. The moment you are born again, you are born righteous. The hidden man, the scripture says, is created in righteousness and true holiness. It's created in a state of being saturated with the righteousness of God. God births in you a new nature. And so you're righteous by birth, righteous by nature, and then you start making righteous choices. But your choices are not what determine your status of righteousness. Your state of righteousness and your status of righteousness begin to determine your choices. So you're righteous by birth, righteous by nature, righteous by choice. It's really important to see that because then you give the glory to God. It's not because you're such a good person. It's because a good God changed you into a good person. And he gave you good values to live by. Now, there's three ways that we sin. If we do sin, God forbid. But if a person falls into sin, there's three ways they do that. Against God, against others, and against ourselves. Again, using the psalmist David as an example, as we have so many times in so many sermons, because he talked about this. He told us the source of sin, and sin did my mother conceive me. In the same psalm, he said, I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. And incidentally, he wrote this psalm after Nathan the prophet had prophesied to him because he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then in verse 4, he said, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So he's admitting that ultimately on the highest level, he did not just sin against Uriah. He did not sin just against Bathsheba. He did not just sin against himself on the highest level. He sinned against God. But the other parts are true. He sinned against fellow human beings, Uriah and Bathsheba, whose lives were damaged as a result, and he sinned against himself because Proverbs 6.32 says, whosoever commits adultery lacks understanding because whosoever does destroys his own soul. So David committed adultery with Bathsheba and in the process sinned against himself, against God, against others, against himself. It works in that way. Now, there are degrees of sin. I know there's some people that say there aren't, but there are degrees of sin. Some sins are worse than others. The Apostle John made the differentiation between sins unto death and sins that were like ordinary transgressions. 
He said there is a sin unto death. So he brought in a very serious distinction of a certain kind of sin. And then when Moses came to God after the children of Israel had backslidden, when he was up in the mountain getting the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone from God, the people of Israel were dancing around a golden idol and committing the sin of idolatry. They broke that commandment right after they heard the audible voice of God speak from the mountain not to make idols and not to have any gods before him because the lower nature is that prone to sin. That's why we need to be born again. But when Moses went back up in the mountain and interceded, he said, oh God, these people have committed a great sin. He didn't just say a sin. If all sin was the same, he wouldn't have used the word great. But he said, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves gods of gold. I guarantee you, telling a fib is not as great a sin as worshiping a false idol. There are degrees of sin. And also, Jesus indicated that when he stood before Pilate, and Pilate said, do you not know that I have power to crucify you and I have power to release you? And Jesus said, you can have no power against me except it be given you from above. And then he went on to say, therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And so Judas's sin was even greater than Pilate's sin. Think of that. And Pilate was the one that actually gave the order that he be put on a cross. And yet Judas's sin was greater. Why? Because Judas knew he was the Messiah. I believe he knew that he was the Messiah. He, along with the other apostles, had cast out devils in the name of Jesus. They had healed the sick in the name of Jesus when he sent them forth with that power. He knew that Jesus was not an ordinary man. Pilate had no idea, except for the warning his wife gave him. Now, there's different types of sin also, if you categorize them in a little bit different way, there are sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins you commit or sins that you commit because you omit to do something. Let me give you scripture for it. In James chapter 4, verse 17, the Bible says, To him who knows to do good and does it not to him, it is sin. That's a sin of omission. If you know you're supposed to line your life up with God, come into alignment with the truth in a certain way, and you keep ignoring your conscience and omitting to do something you feel impressed to do with your life, maybe obedience in a certain area, that's a sin of omission. But then if you're actually committing sin, that's a sin of commission. And you can commit sins a number of different ways. For instance, sinful thoughts. The Bible says the thought of foolishness is sin. That's still sin. Proverbs 24 verse 9. And then just your eyes can cause you to sin. Jesus said, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. And then in 2 Peter 2.14, it talks about those who have eyes full of adultery that cannot cease to sin. So just gazing with a rotten motive, a terrible motive on others can be sin in itself. Sinful looks, sinful thoughts, and then sinful words. 
Proverbs 10.19 says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Hmm. So apparently the more you talk, the more you sin. That could spell big trouble for some people. (laughs) Uh, Might make you make a commitment to be a quiet-natured person, right? Or you can have sinful attitudes. Sinful attitudes, yeah. Because like uh, the exhortation James gave against showing partiality or prejudice. He said if you show partiality, which means to show respect to people because of their financial status or their notoriety, or if you're a prejudiced person, the skin color or the race of a person, which I believe is a horrible sin, uh, then if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. All unrighteousness is sin. That's an umbrella over everything I mentioned and even more, because the word righteous means to be upright, to to be right in line with the perfection that God demands. He said, be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then you can even allow your soul to sink into depression and discouragement and unbelief and fear. And the scripture even caps off that kind of low-spirited attitude with this admonition, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So even if you're allowing yourself to just sink into depression and you don't fight against it by fighting the good fight of faith, you're sinning. That's disturbing, isn't it? And then Proverbs 21.4 says, the plowing of the wicked is sin. How in the world could you be sinning against God by plowing a field? Because a wicked person would reap a harvest with the intention of never giving a tithe of that harvest to God. And so the very act of plowing to prepare that field for seed that would bring forth a harvest is sin because he intends to selfishly keep it unto himself. Hmm. And incidentally, Romans 14.23 is the scripture that says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So it covers a lot of territory. But it's also important to see that in order to really be chargeable as sinning in the sight of God, you have to be knowledgeable. To be chargeable, you have to be knowledgeable. Because the Bible says in Romans 5.13, until the law came, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. In other words, God does not hold people accountable for that that they're ignorant of. But once you know the truth, you're accountable to God to walk in the truth. Because God winks at ignorance, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent, the Bible says. John 15, verses 22 through 24. Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. So, It would be better never to hear the way of righteousness, to hear about the saviorship and the messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be better never to hear about those things than to hear about them and to reject them. He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not 
done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and have also hated both me and my father. Oh, those are strong words. The flesh body that you and I inhabit is the problem maker. Jesus is the problem solver. Because the body is called the body of sin. Even when Jesus comes into the heart of a person, he hasn't changed the flesh yet. It still has a lower nature, a degraded side of the human psyche, the human makeup, is lodged in the flesh. It's a very strange thing. But it's besieged by the law of sin. And now we need to to really focus on something called the law of sin, because thankfully one law can cancel out another law. And so I'm going to move out of the negative into the positive now, and I'm going to show you how a new law in the new covenant cancels out the law of sin. Romans 6.12 says, Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. That's where it lodges. It's like it escapes into that hole. Have you ever seen a snake in your yard that goes back into a hole? I have. And that's what sin is like. It retreats into a place where hopefully you can't deal with it. And it's in your mortal body. Paul talked about in Romans 6 how I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and trying to bring me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And then he said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Thank God he didn't end with a question. But that chapter, actually it was Romans chapter 7. He said, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He said, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. So there is an answer. Now, James talked about this thing called the law of sin and death, and he gave the most powerful insight into what it is of any Bible writer. In James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, he said, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust, by his own desires, and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now, the King James Version says, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. And so, whenever a person commits sin, it results in death. That's an inevitable chain of events. No one can escape it. It's the law of sin and death. Sin has a killing effect. It kills you mentally. It kills you emotionally. It kills you spiritually. Ultimately, it kills you physically. It may not do that right away, but it brings you ultimately to the end of your life. The day you commit sin, the day you transgress God's commandment, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is the day Adam and Eve that a killing effect came in your life. A murderous effect came in your life, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. All right? How can you overcome that? 
how can you overcome that horrible state? Well, there's an answer, and I'm going to share that answer with you right now. It's in Romans chapter 8, and it's a fantastic answer. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, there's a hidden mystery there because the word translated life is zoe, which means divine life. Suke means natural life, but zoe means divine life. He that believes on me has everlasting life. The word is zoe. And that scripture in Romans 8 verse 2 says, the law, it's a law of the spirit of life has made me free from the law of sin and death. See, no one can conquer the law of sin and death by human effort. But when you invite the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart, a new law is placed on the book, so to speak. Like, uh, let me take you back to the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk. They found out that the law of velocity and the law of lift were superior to the law of gravity and the law of friction that prevented something from getting off the ground. So two laws conquered two other laws. Well, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus brings the law of sin and death under submission, under control, under its dominance. Thank God, because the life of God in you resurrects you from the death-dealing effects of sin, initially and all through your walk with God. And probably one of my favorite scriptures, and I'm going to come close to a closing point with this, is 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that says, and this is so beautiful. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The word propitiation means satisfaction for the demands of justice. And the word advocate means a defense attorney. A good defense attorney is going to try and prove you innocent, even if you're guilty. And Jesus is called the judge of the whole earth. But right here in this passage, he's called a defense attorney. If the one defending you in a court of law is the same one judging you, if the judge makes a statement and then he gets out of his seat and comes down and stands next to you to defend you, you've got that court case wrapped up. You don't have to worry a bit. And I guarantee you the judge of the whole earth is also your defense attorney. So you're going to be rescued. And propitiation means satisfaction for the demands of justice because the soul that sins, it shall die. That's the consequence of sin. And death came on Jesus because the Bible said he tasted death for every person so that you and I could escape the consequence of sin and instead have everlasting life. Now, I know our bodies may still go to the grave, but that's a temporary situation because these mortal bodies must put on immortality. And that's going to happen at the resurrection of the dead, when the living Savior comes back to a living body of believers to resurrect us in his likeness so that we are changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, into his glorious, glorious resurrected image. See, there is a cure for the cause. There is a prognosis for the diagnosis. 
you can find the answer if you'll invite Jesus to be the Lord of your life. And I hope you do that. All it takes is a simple prayer. Just say, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me, for my sins. Wash me from my sins in your precious blood. Come to live in my heart. I surrender to you. I repent of my sins. I expect to change my life. Give me the power to do so. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And it will change your life. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.